Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, what we actually have is a recording of a webinar I recently ran on stress and pain. Now, stress and pain have a very complex and important interaction. And what's very interesting is the more that you understand about stress, the more that you can actually master your pain and vice versa as we kind of break and down and deconstruct pain and understand all its various components. The more that you understand pain, the more you'll actually be able to apply those same techniques to stress. So it's a, a win-win interaction here. And in this particular webinar, what we were covering was basic ideas about stress, kind of a new conceptual framework on how to understand it, that understanding that stress itself is not bad per se. It is not bad. It's just stress. But there's these important elements to it that we need to know uh, so that we can really master stress and, and not only uh, get better from periodic stressors, but really to kind of improve our overall lives. And then how we can reflect and use that when it comes to pain mastery as well. Now, that webinar was offered to people who are enrolled in the pain class at www.thepainclass.com. And what the pain class is, is a free introduction into the world of pain and pain science. Provides the, the pain triangle conceptual model, provides ways to think about pain differently, gives a little data on just um, uh, some of the grim news about how it is if you look in the typical healthcare system, how we treat pain, and provides some options on what to do next. And when anybody who enrolls in the pain class has an option to enroll to get emails as well. And in those emails, we'll I'll ask some questions, and then we'll schedule some, some live webinars, and we'll cover these topics like this one on stress and pain. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you're interested in protect, participating, sorry about that, participating in future webinars, well, go ahead and enroll at www.thepainclass.com. All right, and let's get right into this episode. All right, so here we go with the stress and pain webinar, and we're starting, I think, almost on the dot at 7 o'clock, if not just a little bit sooner. So as always with all this stuff, I have a quick disclaimer here that this, this is educational and informational only. Obviously, this is not a substitute for professional medical advice. I'm in no way or shape or form telling you to not do what your, your healthcare provider tells you to do. Uh, and obviously, there's no doctor-patient relationship. This is completely informational. Now, that being said, uh, there's a lot of questions that we're going to cover tonight. And uh, some of them are going to be things like, what is stress? And um, I, I think one of the differences that I, that I have as compared to other people is, is I really stress understanding the problem, really focusing on what that problem is. Um, because if we, once we understand the problem, the solutions start coming out and they start making more sense. If you run around without a, a good firm understanding though, or even a firm definition of it, we can start running around and we start saying, do this, do this, do this, but we never know why. And uh, uh, granted, some people can just do, and man, I wish I could do that. They just say, they just, you know what, just tell me what to do and I can do it and I'll do it. Um, but there's other people like me that, are, that have a lot of skepticism, um, have some difficulty with pursuing or being persistent in action unless we really have a strong why behind it. And so that's what I focus on is understanding what it is, what's the problem, and why it is a problem itself. And with that is why do we experience stress? Um, this is another big one for me is because we have a tendency in healthcare to diseaseify everything, that every bodily process is, is somehow wrong. I remember, um, you know, they back in the, I think it was in, back in the 60s, you know, they, they diseaseified breast milk and we're really promoting women to use formula to feed babies. And now we know that was horrible, horrible advice. And so we, we have a tendency to diseaseify these biological processes without understanding them. And, and there's a reason we experience stress. Stress in and of itself is not a bad thing. And I hope that comes through by the end of this webinar. The other thing is what techniques work. We're not actually going to get into this as much. 
Um, because there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different techniques for stress. What I really want to cover is why do they work? Because there's a commonality behind them. Uh, some really three kind of key things to kind of understand when it comes to stress and how this stuff fits together. And that once you know that stuff, then you can pick and choose the techniques that suit you best, that are a little bit more with your temperament, that fits your lifestyle, that fits your, your, your family dynamic or whatever. And then lastly, what is the stress-pain interaction? Um, the way I actually got involved with stress, uh, and actually I'll talk a little bit more about that about a slide here, um, but because that was one of the common things that was being reported is stress management. It was so critical for pain is stress management. And then I started asking the reason is why? Why stress management? Why is this coming up over and over and over again? When we know that a lot of stuff that we were pushing out wasn't working, this one was the one that kept coming back. Stress management was key. And there was some literature to support that. So what is that interaction? And then lastly, uh, very briefly, where to start? And that'll be at the very, very end of this particular webinar. So the, my uh, number one goal, um, I am big about simplification. So how can we take stress and pain and simplify this into in, in, in a conceptual understanding that makes sense, that's aligned with the science and is easy to use? Now, simplification is, is it's different than what I would call dumbification. Dumbification is easy. You take information and you just kind of throw it together and you make something that, can, that sounds great, but it really isn't aligned with the science. Sometimes it doesn't really fit really well. Um, simplification is more like Apple, you know, it's, it's being able to take something super complex and then making it easy to use. And it is really, really hard, but that is, uh, it's kind of what I focus on because I think it's so important. If you can, if you can make really complex information that is so important to understand, but simplify it so it's useful and easy to apply, uh, that is, a, that's huge because, you know, complex, you can make things super complex. That doesn't help anybody. We can dumbify them. Uh, and that really doesn't, has some problems long-term with that, but simplification is really the goal for me. So we're going to talk about stress and something called stressors. Uh, that's going to lead into stress physiology. How does your body respond and how is it activated by stress? Uh, we're going to touch on overwhelm, you know, example of that being things like burnout. And then lastly, we're going to touch on pain and stress at the end here. Now, who am I for the few people on here that don't really know me? Um, I'm Dr. Kevin Kukaro, and I kind of look at my life and my practice and what I do in two different phases here. There really is this before phase. This is your traditional kind of healthcare background. So I did, uh, you know, went to medical school out in Chicago, and then I did a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Chicago. Um, and anesthesiology is all about applied physiology. It's, it's really watching how... how the mechanisms of the body and consciousness changes with the direct application of pharmaceutical and injected techniques and things like that. And we obviously do that so that we can sort, support people through surgery. Super cool, really enjoyed it, but I was always fascinated by pain. I actually had an interest in pain when I was in medical school and did, uh, you know, shadowed some people out in the pain world for a while. So after I did that, I went to, to University of Michigan, did a fellowship in, in uh, pain medicine there. Um, left after that to go down to San Diego where I was serving in the military and became very quickly the associate program director of their pain medicine fellowship there. Um, and so I had all the credentials, uh, board certified pain specialist. Um, but the reason I have pain crossed out is really what we learned is what to do to people, meaning we learned how to do injections and we learned something about prescribing medications. In fact, I went back about six months ago and looked at one of our large pain texts, like the Bible that you use when you're going through fellowship. This book is over 1,300 pages long, and less than 30 pages of it were devoted to the neurophysiology of pain. The rest of it really was around pharmaceuticals, pathways, uh, injected techniques, and things like that. But, but, 
it's less than 30 pages directed to um, the neurophysiology of pain. And even of those 30 pages, most of it was talking about things like nociceptors or, or these cell, cell receptors. Um, so we didn't talk about pain, which was, which was fr- it's just shocking to me looking back on it now. So the key question for me, though, is when I went out and we were treating patients and the advantage with the military is we had no compensation to do what we were doing, meaning we were all, we were all salaried. So we did injections because me and my colleagues, who are great individuals, we did injections because we believed in them. We believed we were helping our patients. But it was very frustrating to see um, an inconsistency in who got better and who didn't. And what I mean by that is we, we had different approaches. Some of us were very conservative and we'd walk into a room and say, you know, is an injection appropriate for this individual? And some of my colleagues were very aggressive in, their, in how they practice and they would walk into the room and it was, where is an injection appropriate for this individual? And the, the different question produces a different outcome. And so I saw people getting injections that I would never, ever have done. Uh, and the same token, pe- I, I was doing, you know, I, I saw people get better without any injections. I saw people kind of get better with some injections, but it didn't make any sense. There was people with the exact same, what we would call pathology, like what we would call at that time a, a pain generator, which is a horrible misnomer, but we call them pain generators. And you would do the same injection on two different people who had the exact quote unquote pathology and you'd have completely different outcomes. And at the time, um, I blamed it on the system I'm in the military system. We had six other fellowship trained physicians there. We all did different things. We all believed we were the best at what we did because physicians are arrogant by nature. We're kind of, it's kind of driven into you and you think that what you do is the right way. And so when I left, I came to Oregon and I joined a group here, but I was the only pain specialist and I had the perfect practice environment. I mean, I can do the injections. I could follow up my patients very aggressively, or I should say I, should, I could also not do injections and also follow up my patients very aggressively. And what I noticed within six to eight months is my outcomes were no different than what I saw in the military, meaning I didn't see people get better. Now, better to me is this, is that people should have whatever problems that are, that are, that are being addressed so that they can beyond less medications, certainly aren't needing repeat procedures every three, six, five months or year or two years or whatever. They shouldn't be seeing more and more specialists. They shouldn't be prescribed more and more medications. What they need to be doing is, is getting out, getting, getting, being able to get out of the healthcare system and back to living their lives again. And even though I had people come into my office saying, oh, Dr. Carro, I feel so much better. When I looked at the charts, I couldn't say that objectively they were getting back to their lives. Instead, what I saw is if I had done injections in their back, the month after that, I saw that in the charts, they got and saw an orthopedic specialist and got injections in their knees. And then a month after that, they saw a rheumatologist and got injections in their shoulders. And the month after that, they were back to me telling me that either their back or their neck hurt. And medication use rarely went down with the medication, with the injections. Usually if they weren't on medications before the injections, they were not on medications after the injections. And if they were on medications before the injections, they tended to be on medications after the injections. And so that became very frustrating because I did not go into healthcare um, because I didn't want to see people get better. I went into healthcare because I wanted to help people get better and get back to living their lives again. So I started asking these questions like, well, what is the, you know, what's the research say on my, on the procedures that I do? And that was unbelievably shocking to see what the actual data says. And when you're viewing that in a way that, that, um, that you're willing to, to see it, because that's one of the things is being an injectionist is very hard when that's the nature of your income is to see that the data for what you do is pretty horrible. And then after that, what that led me to is asked you to make this question of, do I actually understand the problem I'm treating? Do I understand the problem of pain? And the, I, I want to emphasize that because I, I'm a board certified fellowship trained pain specialist. 
And the problem that I see over and over and over again when it comes to pain is we assume we know what pain is and we jump immediately in how to treat it. And the fact of the matter is we don't. The science of pain has advanced so much over the last 20 to 30 years uh, that if we, if we had a better understanding that outcomes would be better. So you know, put that out there. This is not a pain webinar per se, but this is a stress webinar. Um, but the reason that, that relates to stress is when I got frustrated with the pain aspects, I started looking at what the few things that we knew kind of, kind of worked for pain, but we didn't understand why they worked. And this common thread of stress came up over and over again. And so what a lot of people don't know, and it's probably a lot of you who are on this webinar that know me from before, is actually when, when I stopped doing injections for pain, I actually went deep into the stress world. And for really about the next two to three years, uh, I spent researching stress, stress literature and developing stress programs and took about three, actually I had four different programs that I took people through when it comes to stress. And then I returned to pain <laughs> and, and kind of brought those two together and found that they mesh so nicely that uh, th there's this huge interplay there. And if you understand pain well, uh, or if you understand stress well, it becomes very easy to understand the other because there's some tight similarities and in the, in there's some commonalities there that work out really, really nice. So what about now? Well, I, I do consider myself a pain specialist. Um, I love pain. I appreciate pain. I think it's, it's an amazing thing. And that came about because of understanding pain. I do some consulting work. I work primarily with healthcare systems. I did some large-scale uh, pilot interventions in patient-centered primary care homes. Because of that work, I was um, asked to become a clinical innovations fellow for the state of Oregon, did that. That led to things like the State Pain Commission. I've been involved on multiple regional and state task forces, uh, as well as working in the community in our little community group. Um, recently self-organized, and people who have gone through our pain programs have taken that over, and they are now uh, formally recognized as the Oregon Pain Science Alliance. They've actually formalized their bylaws and they're a legal entity, which is really, really cool because a group of us started that, but people who had a direct investiture in the pain world because they had experienced persistent pain for a long period of time and actually come out of it and are so motivated, uh, that, that alliance has now been taken over by them, which is really exciting to see. So let's begin here. Let's, let's get going here on stress. And we're going to start with this boat. And what I want you to do is sort of imagine that this boat is you. And what I mean by that is you have the physical structure of the boat itself, you have the sails, you have the masts, uh, you have the galley, you have the stern, you have the bow, you have all these pieces. But also with that boat, you have the captain, who's sort of the overall director of it, and you have the crew. And this then is you. You have all of this, the boat, the crew, and the captain, this is you. And you're sailing on this ocean, and that ocean is what we would call life, is all this other stuff that happens around us. But our world is really contained within that boat itself. And that, that, that experience that we have with all those components, that's the experience of life. That's our individual existence right there. Now, what does this affect have to do with stress? Well, let's talk briefly about what stress is. And so if you look back to the definition or one of the many definitions of stress, which is my other favorite thing, let's go to the definition, let's look at the etymology of the world, let's see, let's see what it actually means. But stress has um, you know, lots of different definitions, but I like these kind of three where we're looking at it's an applied force or system of forces that tends to strain or deform a body. So there's a force. It's a resisting force set up in a body as a result of an externally applied force or a physical or psychological force that can produce mental tension or physiological reactions that may lead to illness. So we can kind of codify and simplify that definition down into a number of different little key components here. And the first one is that stress is a force. It's a resulting force. 
And that force is in response to something. And those some things that that stress is responding to can be virtually anything out there. There's the physical stressors, there's the emotional stress, there's psychological stress, there's spiritual stress, there's combinations of all of them. And so while we're living on this boat, what we're seeing is there's all these other forces that are making our boat rock and move and twist and, and uh, uh, you know, water splashes on the decks, but there's all these different uh, uh, forces involved with here. So what constructs the stress force? What is it that, that makes the stress, this, this resulting stress force? How does that actually impact our boat? And that's something that we would call stressors. So stress is the result. Stressors are the initiator. And what stressors are, are physical, psychological, or social forces that put real, and I kind of put that in quotes, or perceived demands on the body, emotions, mind, or spirit of individual. And what you can kind of imagine this is, is what these, what stressors are, are the waves when the external or internal forces that impact that little boat that is us. So we can have few stressors like the image on the left where there's not a lot of wind, but there's still a little wind allowing us to move a little bit. There's still a little waves in there. And that what we would call not a lot of stressors, very low interaction, very low impact on the boat. In the image on the right, you have lots of stressors. Now we have high winds, we have tall waves, we have rocks and things like that. So those all can have huge impacts on us. And the impact of those stressors would be stress. Now what's important though is to understand that stress and stressors in and of themselves are not bad nor good. In fact, you have to have a minimum level of stress to survive. Without stress, you don't move. Without stress, you don't go out and do things like get food, that you don't reproduce, you don't do the bodily activities that you need to do. You have to have some stress. Um, the problem is when we get too, too much of it. Because that results, um, or I should say, it should, it, all stress results in stress physiology. And we'll talk about prolonged stress physiology in a minute here. But when you have a stressor that produces stress in you, what we have is things then that generates what is called the stress response. And what the stress response in kind of layman's terms is this idea of fight, flight, or freeze, which many of you have probably heard before. It's getting us ready to fight off the tiger, to flee from the tiger, or if things are really, really, really bad, to collapse and play dead, and hopefully the tiger doesn't eat us. Now, the, the stress response has basically the whole body brain reaction to it. There's all the interplays, a complex interplay of neurophysiology here. We have both physical ones and psychological. So the brain is actively involved with this, as well as the body is actively involved with this. And some of the responses that we see are things like your heart rate increases so that the blood starts to flow quicker and go where it needs to go. Blood pressure increases. So again, that blood is, is being shunted to where it needs to go and it is able for you to supply the nutrients and oxygen so it allows you to respond and act, be active. Blood flow preferentially changes. It goes to large muscle groups like in your arms and in your legs and in your low back and things that allow you to have those muscles already so that you can fight, fight or free, flee. But it starts shunting blood flow. It decreases blood flow to things like your stomach and your, your GI tract where all the digestion goes. It decreases blood flow to your reproductive organs and to things like um, uh, that help you to reproduce. Um, it also has an, a direct impact on how your brain is active, on attention, where your, atten your attention is. Is it focused attention? Is it distracted attention? Is it kind of... Uh, uh, um, 
uh, uh, mind, you know, empty, where you're sort of, of just being able to, to drift off and, and daydream kind of attention, what stress does is it focuses that attention down and starts making you think differently than you did before. And there's some important reasons for that. There's also an immune reaction with stress. Your body's getting prepared to actually have something occur depending on some certain scenarios. And so it wants to be ready to, if you have been bitten or if something is broken or your skin gets torn and there's potential that some sort of bacteria or infectious agent gets in there, it wants to be prepared already. So all this stuff, just with, when you start feeling stress, all this stuff is going. It's almost pre-actionary rather than reactionary. It doesn't want to wait for the tiger to bite you. It wants all this stuff to be ready before the tiger bites. And then there's a host of other ones as well. Blood glucose level changes so that you have quick and easy energy. Um, Just tons and tons and tons of different physiological effects. It's a global reaction. Now, the way that stressors and stress, though, interact, what kind of increases the size of the stressors, which increases the stress, we can break this down into three key components. The first one's what we'd call frequency. So if you have stressors that occur frequently, you're going to have more stress response. So it's like you have a big wave, and instead of only one big wave hitting your boat, it's a big wave and a big wave and a big wave and a big wave and a big wave with lots and lots of frequency. And that frequency then is going to tax both the boat itself, we can call that the body, as well as the crew, that would be your physiological processes and your, and your mental processes, and the captain, which is more of that cognitive and the brain element as well. Uh, so you can have, again, they have the greatest captain and great crew, but if you have over and over and over again those big waves hit, you're going to be tired. Those, that crew isn't going to be able to get rest. And even with what we would call you know, good, good stress, you can have too much of it for too long, and then you can have too much. The other ones are the size. So frequency is one, size is the other. If you have a huge, massive wave that can tip over that boat, no matter how great the captain, how great the crew, or how big the boat is, depending on the size of the wave. Or if you have larger waves that are hitting you frequently, that is going to be more taxing over time. And then last one is perception. And this is a little bit harder to fit in that analogy because this is how you see those waves. And this plays a huge role because remember, a stressor is both real, i.e. a physical rock, and perceived, what we think is going to occur. And so our perception is a lever and can actually greatly increase the size and effect of a stressor. Now, how does a perception of a stressor uh, change. And this has two key components to it. And that is, do you see it as a threat, whatever that external or internal stressor is? Or do you see it as a challenge? And what I mean is, if you are hunting tigers, and you are have your spear, and we're 200,000 years ago, or whatever, and you're in tiger country, and you hear a crack in the dark cave, if you love to hunt tigers, your perception will be, this could be a tiger awesome. That's a challenge. That was what we would call produce eustress, which I'm going to go into in a second. If, however, you don't like to hunt tigers, or maybe you're being dragged along because someone's making you hunt tigers, or maybe you're not even hunting tigers, but you're just out gathering food, and you hear that crack and you think, oh my God, that's a tiger. The perception in that moment is threat. This is distress. There's a danger. I don't like to hunt tigers. This is a bad thing. Now, notice this is the crack is the same. The twig cracking is the same. So what changes is the perception of the event, whether that's a challenge 
or a threat. And what that does is it changes the physiologic reaction that we have. When we see something as a challenge, what happens is we secrete more of what we would call short-term uh, neurotransmitters, things like epinephrine and noradrenaline. And we have less of something called cortisol, which has long-term reaction with it. Because we're thinking that we have both, we, we, we are prepared for that challenge and we have the resources to overcome it. So all we need is to generate the physiological response to overcome it. Now, the problem with threat, though, is not only do you get those kind of adrenaline hormones going, but you get cortisol, which is a longer acting hormone that has multiple effects throughout your entire body. It's also vital for life. But when you have high levels of cortisol for long periods of time, what that starts to do is start to do some very bad things, which we're going to talk about in a second. But you see an increase in that cortisol when we see things as a threat. And there's a reason why for it. Now, when we have prolonged stress physiology. So we've had, we have stressors that are occurring. We have big waves happening frequently, or we have a massive wave that occurred and now we're trying to recover from it, or we're just not a very well-trained crew or a captain that's not really, really prepared to do his job. And so we perceive any wave as a big wave. What we stand to have is this prolonged stressed reaction, this prolonged stress physiology. And this occurs again, when we have the perception that these stressors, we can't cope with them. They're too big. We're, they're just too, they're too big. We're not ready to hunt these tigers. We don't like to hunt tigers. When we haven't had time to recover, so even if you, if you still love to hunt tigers and you think that's a challenge to hunt tigers, but if you're doing it every day, day in and day out, without allowing your body to sleep and recover and rest and eat the right foods, you're going to have problems long-term because your body's going to start breaking down. And then lastly, is ability is exceeded by demand. And this is the one that uh, kind of grows over time. And this is the one where if you have a, a, a challenge or a stressor that exceeds your ability to cope with it, that has a tendency to produce prolonged stress because now you're in a state where that has, um, you've been overwhelmed in that moment. Or if it's a large stressor frequently, that that has been a summation of that stress has gone on too long that allows you to be overwhelmed. Now, what happens with that stress physiology then is that that stress response continues. So it's either been continuing daily or more likely that it's being turned on and then turns off, but there doesn't have the recovery that you need to decrease those hormones. And particularly the one that we're most concerned about is that cortisol. Uh, that cortisol uh, uh, secretion then has, again, is, is vital in the short term and is very important for, for what we call acute stress or if you actually were attacked by the tiger. But over the long term, when you're having those cortisol levels that become almost dysfunctional, um, that is where a lot of the problems lay. And so what we see then with that prolonged stress physiology is we have that extended fight, fight, or freeze, and we have this extended physiology that increases your heart rate, your blood pressure starts to change, your ability of the heart actually, your, your, or should your blood pressure to regulate itself becomes impaired. So we start seeing things like high blood pressure easier. The blood flow in your body now gets impaired. So we see things again like GI dysfunction, difficulty with digestion, intermittent constipation and diarrhea and things like that. We see reproductive issues with that. And then the attention and perception, we think problems with, with thinking and paying attention and uh, being able to process information. Your immune response becomes impaired. Uh, it's almost like you have, you know, you're, you've been turning up and down your soldiers all the time. So they stop listening to you and a bunch of soldiers that are bored in your body start doing bad things and attacking tissues that they're not uh, supposed to be attacking. 
um, and a lot of other things like again, glucose metabolism, thing like that. But this is, this is in a state where we, that I would call overwhelm with this prolonged stress physiology. And so what we see with overwhelm then is this association with things like heart disease and strokes. So again, if we're revving up that cardiovascular system, we're getting that heart moving and we have the blood pressure rising, um, too much of that for too long would be associated with things like heart disease and strokes. High blood pressure, diabetes, which has to do with uh, um, insulin sensitivity that gets impaired over time with stress. Obesity, because we see that uh, the um, uh, adipose tissues change with cortisol specifically. It becomes easier to get sick because of immune dysfunction, and we heal slower. Uh, I talked about the changes in the, in the bowel itself where you start seeing things like irritable bowel. And, you know, irritable bowel is, is, is uh, defined by intermittent constipation and diarrhea. And from a stress standpoint, you can see that in what stress does. It slows down your ability to digest food. It slows down the ability of your, of your small intestine, which is the part right after the stomach, to absorb nutrients. But then what it does is it speeds up the very last part of your, of your colon, the area just where, where you have poop, basically. And what it does there is it stimulates that. And so if you have anything in there, it wants to push it out immediately. And so you get things like slow digestion in the beginning is going to cause uh, constipation. And then if anything finally gets down to that last kind of distal area, then you start seeing things like diarrhea. Um, other parts is difficulty for pregnancy uh, and abnormal menses when women have, have uh, difficult menses or changing their menses. Other things that we start seeing are things like anxiety, anorexia or overeating, insomnia is a big one. I can tell you personally, that's my particular, one of my big stressors, like I recognize that, that's a stress symptom for me. Depression is associated with stress. Uh, fatigue. When you're turning on that high focus beam of attention over and over and over again, the brain itself gets fatigued. We get foggy thinking. It becomes difficult to think clearly. And the other thing that's commonly associated with an overwhelmed physiology is pain. So the question then becomes why pain? And I want to return, and most of you have gone through the pain class, or at least you, you've, you have had access to it because those are the people that I email now. And with pain, we need to return to what is pain. The fundamental idea about pain that has changed over the last 30 years here is really understanding that pain is, is an experience. It's an experience that we construct within our bodies. It's defined by these bodily characteristics. But the reason that we experience pain isn't because of damage. It's because we perceive danger, this increased danger that we see. And this led into key concept number one of the pain class, which is really to understand fundamentally to our core that the purpose of pain is protection, not punishment. And so it's not damage per se that increases or decreases the experience of pain. Again, we can take a leg and we can break it and make it worse. But really what the, the, the key component to making pain higher or worsening pain is increasing the sense of danger that is associated with it. So if I took, if you broke a leg, and then I went out and I took a hammer and I said, I'm going to break your leg further. Yes, the damage that I do is going to increase your pain. But the fear and the terror and the knowledge that that's what I'm doing to you and the need to protect yourself from it, that's going to have as much of an effect on it. This is one of the reasons that you th see things that people can have severe injuries and have very little pain is because that if they've recovered from a similar injury in the past, they're in an environment that is safe for them. They feel that they can have, uh, uh, that, it's, that this is an adversity that they can overcome, that there's less danger associated with it or, or it's known. And the more we know things, the less danger is associated with it, the less pain that you experience. 
So the question then becomes when it comes to stress and pain is how do you perceive pain? Do you perceive pain as a threat that pain equals damage or are your clients seeing pain as pain equals damage, i.e. a threat? Or do they see it as a challenge that pain itself is not equal to damage? It may be associated with damage, but it's not the same thing. And pain is really a protector that's trying to protect you from something. And the challenge then is to identify what it is trying to protect you from. Because what's the greater stressor here? Remember, stressor is any sort of external or internal force that can affect us. And so pain itself can become a stressor. And it increases that stressor when we see it as a threat. And if you believe pain equals damage, that's a pretty big threat that you're going to experience, which is going to amplify that stress response, which is going to change your physiology and actually become more likely that you're going to experience more pain over the long term. Versus identifying pain as a challenge or understanding that pain, again, is a protector and not a punisher. That allows us to, to experience pain in a more challenge-based way to recognize that pain in and of itself is not as horrible, awful thing. It's again, it's, it's required, necessary for existence in life. The question is, is what is it trying to protect us from? And what's the challenge there is how can we identify those key contributors that are used in constructing pain so that we can target them and ultimately get better? That's a challenge mindset. The other way to consider this or the other aspect to this though is what happens when you're overwhelmed? What's stress physiology do? And with stress physiology, when you have a body that is over, a brain and body that's overwhelmed, that's not being able to think clearly, that has high levels of, we can call them multiple different sorts of stress hormones, that has stress-based physiology, that hasn't had a time to recover, do you think your brain in that stress environment is going to feel safe or under threat? And the answer is, if, you, if you've ever been in a moment when you've been highly stressed, the easiest one is if you haven't slept for two or three days, haven't slept well, or even if you didn't sleep very well overnight, how likely are you to experience more aches and pains? Without good sleep, is, are you more or less likely to notice that, say, your back is hurting, or maybe you're noticing that a joint is, is off, or, or maybe you feel just a dull ache in your body? I can tell you, if you have been on call for long periods of time, when we were doing trauma call in medical school, we were on call every other day. We were up for 24 and off for 24 hours. And when you've been doing that for a substantial long period of time, you start having difficulty thinking. You start aching more. Your body, your, you know, your brain is just under this thing as overwhelming threat. And uh, when it comes to a pain standpoint, that increases threat perception, which has an increase on our experience of pain. Uh, which I basically just talked about, and this is the slide that we're supposed to talk about it through. When you have this perception that stressor exceeds that ability to cope, we have insufficient recovery and or the ability, our own internal abilities to process and modulate stress or, or be able to perceive our demand reactions, uh, that distress response continues. And your body itself, your body and brain are saying, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe, I'm unsafe. So then what do we do? What do we do for stress? Well, Really, if you understand that it has to do with perception, again, that perception, that recovery and ability, then mastering stress really comes down to identify those three components as well. How can we use perception to change threats to challenges so that we're decreasing the sense of danger and increasing the sense of the safety with them? Now, there are multiple th th ways to do that. One of them 
is simply to learn. And the more that you know, the more things are uh, certain rather than uncertain, that has a tendency to, to change threat to challenge because it's like, I like to say, if you have a, you know, there's a dark room and there's a horrible growling noise on it, you can just think that there's a horrible bear it's in the, in your, in scary and nasty and there's this thing. But the first thing to do is turn on the light and see in there. Being able to identify and know more of that, the context and the surrounding, decreases the threat associated with it. Sure, there may be a bear in there, but now we know it's a bear. Now we're not facing that uncertainty of what if, what if, what if. Well, that's a very big one. In fact, I think that is the most important is the perception one. Now, recovery is different. What recovery is, is making sure that you have a consistent recovery practice. This is, comes into the healthy living areas, making sure that you have a good sleep hygiene, that you're getting adequate sleep every night. There's a reason that, but, uh, that sleep restoration is basically a mainstay of every good pain program out there, that they're focusing on making sure that we're sleeping. Sleeping allows your body to recover, allows your brain to recover, allows it to be able to start processing information in, in a quote-unquote more normal fashion and helping it to feel safe again. Now, along with that, though, are things like mindfulness training or meditation training or relaxation exercises. Those are all what I would put in the category of recovery. And what the recovery allows you to do is, as long as you're doing consistently, is basically you're giving your body, that boat, you know, you're allowing it the time for the crew to rest, the captain to sort of de-stress, to recover so that when future stressors occur, they are ready to go. Also along with that, though, is the, the healthy living where it comes to diet. So making sure that you're eating real foods, not high processed foods with a lot of sugar and those kind of things like that, so that your body itself is healthy, that, that your body then is, um, uh, is, is stronger, has more innate ability and can process these threats easier than a sick body. And then lastly is the ability. So what ability is, is basically like a stress muscle. And how do you develop that is, the, is it facing challenges throughout your life. This is one of the dangers that we see now. Um, I'm not going to pick on the millennials or anything, but when you have helicopter parents, if, you've, if you think you're protecting your kids and not letting any bad things to occur from them, you're actually harming them substantially because every challenge is an opportunity to le learn. And every failure that we experience is an opportunity to learn from that and prepare for the future. And what that allows us to do with these small challenges is to increase our ability to cope with greater stressors in the future. And there are ways that you can conscientiously do that. And one of those is you can do that through physical training. You can do it through uncomfortable exercises, things like doing new experiences that are, that are things that you don't prefer to do. Um, getting into interactions that are not necessarily, um, again, not comfortable if, if I'm more of an introverted person, but challenging doing something that is sort of outside my comfort zone. So we're continuing to expand that is a basing allow us to increase and grow that ability that we have to deal with stressors. And these are virtually the exact same things with pain. Meaning with pain is how we change threat to challenge. Are we seeing pain as the threat or are we seeing it as a challenge? How do we feel safe again by changing our perception of all those different contributors, which we go into detail on, on all the potential contributors and things like the pain class, but being able to change that perception from threat through challenge is monumentally huge for pain. Recovery, um, again, making sure that you have a consistent recovery practice. Mindfulness works for pain. Why does that work? For a couple different reasons. One, it changes your perception. The other time is it's built in recovery. So it's allowing your brain and body to recover over time. 
This is again where diet comes in. This is where healthy sleep patterns come in. And then lastly is growing that, that ability. One of the really exciting things when you, when you start working on understanding pain and make, being able to deconstruct pain and seeing those key components to pain is the more you know, the more you learn about it, the better you are able to, uh, I hate the word cope, be active and engaged for future quote unquote pains. Um, I know some of you have, have been on my email list for a while and there was a, an event that happened about six months ago and it, it just is absolutely fascinating to me is the more that I know about pain, the less I actually hurt. And so the specific episode is where I, I grabbed a cast iron stove out of a 400 degree oven and I ended up with, with uh, partial thickness burns along the inside of my hand. And um, that, that should have hurt for a long period of time, but it, it literally hurt for about 10 minutes and then I never noticed again. Um, and, and, you know, there's a whole host of different reasons for that, but I, but understanding pain changes this thing. There's another person that I work with and she is not on the webinar, but she's one of my favorite people. Uh, she's done a lot of training in pain and she's done some fantastic work in our computer, our community. And actually I'm, I want to do a podcast on her because, um, she actually fell down about a 40 foot cliff in May and had, I don't remember multiple fractures throughout her body. And when she got to the ER, the orthopedic specialist was like, I just can't believe that you are not taking any, she was not any medications. Uh, you know, <laughs> she was just an absolute mess. Um, but she really put that as the fact that she understood pain and being able to distinguish between threat and challenge and being able to return to feeling safe. And she was with her mom and they were using humor, which is a very potent uh, safety kind of mechanism that sort of ultimate de-stressor is laughter. Uh, and she, I don't think she ever took any sort of uh, opioid medications. I don't think she took any authoritative analgesic and medications. But that's being able to grow your ability over time. And ideally, though, is being able to do that with awareness and intent. And what I mean by that is it's a different when you throw out a bunch of grab bag techniques and you say, well, you need to do mindfulness for pain. Again, that can work. But if you're someone like me, the question becomes why? Why am I doing mindfulness for pain? Well, I'm doing mindfulness because I know that that's going to help me recover. That also can change with perception, and there's some neurophysiologic reports with that because what mindfulness does is it gets your prefrontal cortex more engaged and allows it to overcome some of the more, uh, quote-unquote, emotional uh, triggered areas in the brain itself. And the other part about that is if you're practicing that over time, you're increasing your ability to cope with future stressors. So mindfulness is ideal because it's hitting all three of these things. Sleep restoration. Well, you have to sleep and improve your pain. And people will say, well, I can't sleep because I'm in pain. And so we need to kind of cover those details on what good sleep hygiene is, making sure that you're moving through the day so that you have a tired body and brain. So when you're going to sleep at night, that both of them want to rest. Um, the importance behind consistent habits for, for, for sleep. Why that actually changes how we experience pain and how that also improves our own internal physiology. Because, because this is not all about pain. This is about your creating and constructing a healthy brain and body environment. And that awareness and intent really comes through understanding the science of pain and stress physiology. So the questions that we return to from the beginning here is really what is stress? And stress is that resulting force to something. And again, that something can be physical, psychological, emotional, uh, social, whatever. All of that stuff impacts the experience, which is our life that we're in. And the reason that we experience stress is because of stressors. And that stress really is fundamental to the human existence. If we did not experience stress, we would die. We wouldn't eat. 
we wouldn't do the things that we need to do. The, the problem is, is when we are experiencing too much distress, when we're not, we don't understand the problem, we're getting overwhelmed by that, we have perceptions that it's insurmountable, that we're not having recovery amount of time, and we don't have, have not developed the ability to, to really be processed and engage with it. That's when the problem occurs. What techniques work? Well, I'm not going to get into that is because there are so many different types of techniques. And what's more important is why do they work? Are you helping your brain and body to recover? Are you growing your ability to cope with future stressors? Or are you being able to change your perception and see things more as a challenge and less of a threat? Can you take the large problem and break it, chink it down into a small problem that becomes much more manageable. That's one technique there. So which is being able to identify those three aspects. Is it perception that you're working on? Is it recovery that you're working on? Or is it growing your ability that you're working on? Or ideally, are you doing all three with, with whatever technique that you're, that you're trying to develop? And then lastly, what's the stress-pain interaction? Well, stress increases, stress physiology increases when we have distress, which is that threat base stress. That's the, the more bad stress. Pain increases when we have more threat and danger. And so there is this lovely kind of relationship they have. And as we feel safe, and we can increase our sense of safety, and we can do that through multiple different ways, not only can we address pain, but we can actually address stress, and we can address our overall health. So one of the benefits with, with stress mastery techniques or pain mastery techniques is they're not just about pain or stress. Pain skills, stress skills are life skills. And you see benefits not just for the pain and stress, but you see benefits for sleep, health, emotional health, physical health. And uh, that's one of the exciting things for me is this becomes not a single, it, 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 these become exponential techniques very, versus a limited technique. And then where to start, um, I, I, I was trying to work this in a little bit more. But if you have to go back and we look at these three areas that to, to cover, um, the programs that I develop, what we tend to start with is recovery. And what I mean by that is easy to, do, to start with a single skill set. In fact, in my, my stress programs, we start with breathing like a lot of people do. We do big, deep diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, reasons for that is it's easy to do. Everybody breathes. Everybody can learn how to breathe more effectively and efficiently. It feels good to breathe, and we can do it quickly. And so what we're doing is we're starting on recovery, even though it's, um, if you have to look for the biggest bang for your buck, it's probably perception. But by growing that skill, by developing a consistent habit, or starting with some sort of recovery stress technique, it could be mindfulness meditation, it could be deep breathing exercises, it could be relaxation training and things like that. By doing that consistently and developing the habit, what you're also slowly doing is you're increasing your ability because you're training, quote unquote, kind of stress muscle thing. And the more and more that you do that, the perception starts to change because you start actually seeing, oh, you know what? This is actually, I'm actually getting better. I'm actually getting stronger and our sense of self-efficacy improves. So we start with the recovery because I think it's the easiest one to, to approach first. However, whatever specific technique that you want to do there and build from it. Um, really to the perception is the next one and the ability kind of comes over time. All right, here. So 
next steps for for this and i'm just going to kind of put this out as a as a shout out to the pain course we go into much greater detail about pain we touch on stress physiology in there as as in session four and we talk a lot about awareness intent in session either session five or six and so if uh, that's available at paincourse.com uh, the other thing is um, I have a future program that is upcoming. That's overcoming stress and pain. This is going to be my my revised variant of a very popular program called Overcoming Overwhelm, which was um, it's a 30-day program for stress where we do we work on that deep, slow, deep breathing, and we build uh, over 30 days an entire skill set over that. If you're interested in that, you can contact me directly because I'm it's uh, it's upcoming, but I'm not exactly sure which which month that we're going to start in. I don't have all the details on that yet. And with that, also, oh, we got a, quite a number of people today. Okay. Well, I appreciate all of you so much. And um, it, as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can feel free to email me directly at drkevin at straightshothealth.com. And until next time, stay well.